Hello, and welcome to Actively Speaking. I'm your host, Steve Blyberg. Join us each episode as we discuss current issues concerning capital markets and portfolio management from the perspective of an active manager. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Actively Speaking. Today, we're going to be talking about ESG. Uh, my guest today is Richard Watt, who is the head of sustainable investing here at Epic. Welcome. Uh, hi, Steve. Thanks. How are you? Good. Uh, why don't we start off by talking about uh, what does sustainable investing mean at Epic? Uh, sure. Well, um, you know, Steve, I think you've written extensively, and uh, I believe we have a podcast on what Epic believes really matters in the invest for investing success. Uh, namely, that a company's ability to generate uh, cash flow is a strong signal of the likelihood of a business being sustainable. And it's the effective allocation of free cash flow that really determines longer term value creation for stockholders. So Epic has always been focused around assessing good company management practices and the oversight provided by boards in the form of governance. So really what ESG does is extend our investment lens to incorporate other considerations that may be material to both risk assessment as well as identifying growth opportunities. So, so give us some examples of, of E, of S, and of G. Of what, are, what are the issues that people are concerned about? Yeah, so part of the problem slightly is that there is such a broad range of um, uh, criteria associated with each of them. It is hard to pin it down into just a subset of sort of five or six factors. For example, one of the largest uh, data providers that's out there, Morgan Stanley Capital International, they have, I think, 10 themes and 37 different ESG criteria. Some organizations have tried to uh, synthesize these down to a, a more um, sort of manageable subset. In fact, even this year, I think NASDAQ has encouraged something approaching 30 different criteria that they would like companies to report on. But the sort of things that sort of fall under E would be related to climate change, um, the water gap that is developing, in terms of S considerations, it would be issues related to diversity and inclusion, for example, human capital management practices, labor rights, and so on and so forth. And under governance, these have been well picked over over the years. In fact, there's not many that are new, but you know things like separation of uh, CEO, chairmanship, those sorts of things, committees focused on sustainability issues and so on and so forth. So there really is sort of like a broad uh, range of factors associated with ESG. But ultimately, Epic, I think, is, feels that this sort of boils down to client preferences. Okay, so you, you and I have both been in the business a long time and <laughs> well remember in the 1980s, there were things like, uh, I guess it fell under the umbrella of socially responsible investing at that time is what it was called. Things like not owning tobacco stocks or not owning yeah. uh, stocks in companies that made weapons or that you know companies that did business in South Africa, uh, things like that. So what, what's the difference? And that, that seemed to be all about just excluding names and you know just don't own those names. But it seems like ESG investing is, is not that. It's not just, oh, well, these are, you know, quote, bad companies. Don't own them. It, it's much more than that, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I think that's absolutely right, Steve. The, the notion of excluding particular sectors or companies is an expression of value. I mean, essentially, values, excuse me. That, that is essentially what I think comes under the term of socially responsible investing or SRI. Now, some people like to sort of um, see the roots of SRI going back 200 years ago to the, to the Methodists. You know, in the modern time, in, in, in exactly in this period that you and I perhaps grew up in this business, 
you know, you've seen particular strategies geared away from companies that, let's say, produce armaments or companies that produce certain types of products that people don't necessarily want to be associated with, like tobacco stocks or alcohol stocks. All those sorts of companies, those are expressions of, if you will, values. But ESG integration is much more than that in the sense that ESG integration is not necessarily just simply about excluding companies, but looking to invest in, in all sorts of different companies in a very different and more holistic fashion. And in some respects, the expression of that is partly due to the, to the way our industry has developed in that today you have these massive huge asset owners that in fact own pretty much all sectors of the market. So to the extent that you might be invested in one particular sector which is doing well, that might be at the expense of some other sector. And so therefore there's an incentive amongst these large asset owners to see that um, uh, all sectors actually perform uh, very well. So you're not sort of disadvantaged just simply by the performance of one sector or another. And that's also been given expression at various different levels, policy levels and so on and so forth. So ESG integration is a very, very different approach than just simply SRI type of investing. One of the interesting aspects of, of ESG investing, as you say, is it used to be you know, SRI years ago was just don't own these stocks, but today is very different. And not only is it not don't own these stocks, in many cases it's, yeah, you can own them. And in fact, you should be actively engaging with the management of the, of the company to urge them you know, to do certain things or not do other things, which I find interesting that, that it seems like a weird way. Like if you were just sort of an observer from Mars and you come in and you look at the way our economy is structured and the fact that you have these big asset owners with you know, mostly retirement assets, say, and that the way they're going about trying to achieve certain changes is to have their money managers lobby the companies to do certain things, as I say, or not do other things, as opposed to lobbying governments and regulators mm-hmm. to, to change rules or pass laws that would achieve the, those goals. You would think more efficiently, why, why, is it, you know, why are we going this way as opposed to you know, of having money managers be the ones to sort of pressure companies as opposed to having the asset owners lobby governments directly. Yeah. Well, I mean, look, I think it's a fair observation. And I think the truth of the matter is that we're actually seeing both uh, trends take place. Both both strategies are in effect. Um, you know, it's curious that if you, if you think of um, today, the structure of today's economy and society, I think it's fair to say that of the 100 largest economies in the world, uh, more than half of those are actually individual companies. So in fact, um, those companies sort of transcend local uh, legal jurisdictions. So in a sense, that the one sort of continuum that you have is shareholders, because shareholders can be based anywhere. And there is this notion that, um, you know, as a consequence of that, uh, engagement is seen as not only necessary, but in a sense, an obligation to exercise the rights of shareholders in this overall process. But I think as well, there's been a very, very important development in the course of the last three or four years in particular. And this was given expression in the Paris Agreement of 2016, which was really born out of the 17 socially development goals, sustainable development goals, excuse me, the SDGs, which were developed in, in 2015. And essentially, what the, the agreement, what those goals recognized was that government in of themselves was an ineffective mechanism 
to deal with the transitions that society faced, particularly the challenges faced in, in climate change. And that therefore, there was a broad recognition that the, the way to achieve this was actually through individual companies and with the support of asset owners in this whole process as well. So essentially, it was a way to uh, recognize the importance of the capitalist system in helping the globe move towards uh, solving these uh, rather large problems rather than necessarily, in fact, government alone simply trying to dictate that this is the way that, we are, that we're going about it. And so you can see that being expressed in regulation actually all around the world. I would say in Europe, uh, it's most visible, the EU taxonomy that uh, really was released kind of this year. You've seen it uh, expressed in Australia, you've seen it being expressed in Canada, and you're also seeing it amongst asset owners and asset managers in movements like the We Are Still In, for example, here in the United States. So I think you have this uh, expression, and it's, it's really sort of dovetailing both of those two trends together. It's the reason why asset managers like us are being in, encouraged to engage with companies <coughs> in this whole process. Okay, well, that makes sense. Okay, let's talk about another uh, topic uh, related to this that I think is really interesting, which is who decides uh, you know, what's good, what's bad? So there are certain practices, you know, if you've got a chemical company and they're dumping toxic waste into a, a reservoir that serves as drinking water of some town, obviously that's terrible. Nobody would think that's a good thing. But of course, there are already laws against that. Uh, but it, there, are, there are other things that I think, you know, people say, well, you know, it's a little grayer. You know, it's uh, if you're, you mentioned, you know, human capital or sort of development. And if you could get 100 people together and, and show them what some company is doing in terms of its training and development of its people. And, and 51 of them might say, oh, I think that's pretty good. And 49 mm -hmm. might say, oh, I don't think that's very good. So how do we, uh, how are we deciding what is good and what is bad? Are we entrusting that to, to, out, to a third party? How is this happening? Yeah, I mean, look, I think the simple answer to that is that this is all in development. Um, there, I mean, ultimately, the, the primary motivator here is the asset owner. Again, let's come back to the asset owner. And here, you know, we've talked about universal ownership from some of the large asset managers, uh, asset owners, excuse me, beforehand. We've talked about the increasing importance of groups like millennials and others who are set to, in, to inherit significant amounts of wealth. And there are preferences that are being expressed there through uh, investment options. But I think as well, there are two or three other uh, sort of observations to make here. Um, one is that it does appear that there are groups who are providing, if you will, ratings based on ESG criteria. Now, I spent a bit of time looking into these ratings, and I'm not necessarily convinced that you would want to build a portfolio or uh, report to clients with characteristics around those ratings because methodologies vary significantly. Correlations across these various ratings providers are extremely low. They're not like the ratings that you find, say, being applied to countries or to bonds by some of the traditional rating agencies in our business. But they're out there, and I would say, you know, um, I would say they you would use them a bit like you might like to use sell-side research in that you probably pay little attention to the recommendation, the buy-hold-sell, uh, but you might be interested in the underlying research that has gone into the appraisal of a company. So I would say that those ratings groups, some of the methodologies can be interesting. By the way, there's a significant amount of consolidation taking place amongst those ratings groups right now. And also, I think 
the most exciting development is in the area of big data. There are a number of providers that are, um, are developing um, research for groups like us, which are based in big data, which I think also will be kind of interesting. The other area that I think has had a significant influence on this have been the proxy advisors. Uh, these are groups like ISS or Glass-Lewis. There's, there's not very many of them out there. But they have, in my opinion, had an undue influence in the determination, if you will, of, of practices that could be determined to be good or bad, to use your terminology. And I do think it's significant that the SEC has, uh, here in this country at any rate, has begun to opine on this, and they've recently announced some interpretation and guidance about the role of the proxy advisors. And the bottom line is that managers are going to have to uh, invest more time and money assessing uh, the validity of the recommendations that are coming from, the, uh, from these proxy advisors, and I think that's wholly appropriate. So there's going to be more onus on managers to develop uh, their own policies and, and voting guidelines. And then finally, you are seeing the development of quote-unquote ESG standards. Uh, and this is a very complicated exercise because many of those standards are not necessarily uh, quantifiable. Oftentimes, they are highly qualitative in their assessment, and arguably this is a qualitative assessment at the end of the day. But you, know, you have got groups like the Sustainable Accounting Standards Board or SASB, which developed a materiality map uh, beginning in 2011. You have groups like the CDP, which EPIC uh, is a signatory to, which uh, has very interesting research that can be very helpful in, in uh, providing insights into companies. And then finally, I would say the most significant development has been an initiative that was really uh, created by uh, Mark Carney, uh, head of the central bank in the UK, and Mike Bloomberg, everyone's familiar with here in the States, which began in 2016. And this was the so-called Task Force on Climate Financial Disclosure, or the acronym is TCFD. And many companies are adopting this, this standard, and I think this will help in the transparency of reporting around these considerations. So I think it will be wholly to the benefit <coughs> of managers in determining essentially what matters to the underlying investment uh, objectives that we were talking about earlier on, Steve. Right. Okay, well, let's, uh, to, to finish up, let's talk about active versus passive management, since this is, of course, a, a podcast called Actively Speaking. And we're, we, our goal here is to talk about things from the perspective of an active manager. Is this subject uh, something that lends itself better to active or passive management? Or another way to put it is, how do, how do passive managers deal with this? Because sort of the definition of passive management is you just own everything. Yeah, yeah I mean, I think that's, that's the, the, the argument in a nutshell. Um, I think the opportunity here is for active managers to invest in companies where there is clear evidence of policies and practices in place that would give you some comfort that those businesses are indeed more sustainable than other companies and, you know, against the challenges that many companies will face going forward, particularly, you know, this whole notion of shifting towards a decarbonized uh, economy would mean that there are bound to be uh, significant winners and significant losers in this process. So therefore, it would seem to me the opportunity is really quite large to invest in companies where you can see those practices in effect, because those companies ultimately should be the winners. Not only will those companies be able to uh, reduce risk in this type of environment, and you can think of risk along a continuum of 
physical risk associated with climate change, for example, or the transitional risks uh, associated with climate change, through to you know reputation and liability risks that could exist out there. So I think this is a real opportunity for active management to uh, to really research companies in detail, construct portfolios, which will generate significantly attractive uh, risk-adjusted returns relative to what you might expect purely from passive approaches in the marketplace. Okay. Richard, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Steve. You're welcome. And I uh, hope you enjoyed this episode, and we'll talk to you again soon. Remember to subscribe to Actively Speaking on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Play. You can find all of our previous episodes and additional content on our website, www.eipny.com. The information contained in this podcast is distributed for informational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice or recommendation of any particular security, strategy, or investment product. Information contained herein has been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but not guaranteed. The information contained in this podcast is accurate as of the date submitted, but is subject to change. Any performance information referenced in this podcast represents past performance and is not indicative of future returns. Any projections, targets, or estimates in this podcast are forward-looking statements and are based on EPIC's research, analysis, and assumptions made by EPIC. There can be no assurances that such projections, targets, or estimates will occur and the actual results may materially be different. Other events which were not taken into account in formulating such projections, targets, or estimates may occur and may significantly affect the returns or performance of any accounts and or funds managed by EPIC. To the extent this podcast contains information about specific companies or securities, including whether they are profitable or not, they are being provided as a means of illustrating our investment thesis. Past references to specific companies or securities are not a complete list of securities selected for clients, and not all securities selected for clients in the past year were profitable.